Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. again. Welcome to another edition of Blockhead. Today is a very special day. Have we got an episode lined up for you? Yes, indeed. This is the one I've been talking about for it seems like months now, but only it's only been a few weeks. But I've been anticipating it. I hope you have been too. Today we have a true cartooning legend with us. We have Lynn Johnston of the beloved comic strip For Better or For Worse. To celebrate the 41st anniversary of For Better or For Worse, we sit down with Lynn to talk about her life, her career, uh, For Better or For Worse, how it developed, cartooning in general, Charles Schultz, comics, and everything under the sun that we could think of we touch base on in this conversation. And, and it's just terrific. And I have to tell you, Lynn was just so fortunate forthcoming and so nice and it was a real pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to her I have to, I have to say was uh, was just one of the special moments in this podcast for me so I think you're going to enjoy it if you're a fan of comics if you're a fan of comic strips and cartooning over the last 50 or 60 years and you care about comics history then I know you must be a Lynn Johnston fan so sit back and and get ready and hey, while you're listening, you might consider heading on over to patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan and consider uh, supporting the podcast. If you're a fan of this episode, a fan of this show in general, uh, anything you can you can contribute to the Patreon page would be a big plus, a big help to ensuring the longevity of the program. There's lots of interesting little giveaways for Patreon supporters on every level, so check it out today, okay? Having done the due diligence to the commercial, let's get right to the interview. Lynn Johnston and myself in conversation. Hello, Lynn Johnston. Welcome to Blockhead. Hello. Thanks for calling. <laughs> sure. I, I mean, it's, wait, I'm thrilled to call. I'm, I'm absolutely, this is just a, a big, exciting moment for me to be able to reach out and talk to, to you, who is one of the greatest cartoonists of the last 50 years. I mean, it's it's amazing and it's fun and it's it's exciting and I'm 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 sitting on pins and needles here because I'm so excited to talk to you. <laughs> well, get up, get up. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. you know, it's great it's great to hear you say those lovely things because anytime I talk to anybody under say 30, they have no idea what for better or for worse was. They know peanuts though. Well, I guess, but still, for better or for worse, is still in like what two thousand papers or something like that. About twelve hundred, I think. Twelve hundred. Okay, so yeah. well, that's just not because the strip is shrinking, but rather because the newspaper business is. And, and it uh, is. The, yeah. The, yeah. The thing. I mean, it's interesting what you mentioned about folks under thirty. It, it, they just don't read newspapers like we did growing up. And I'm in the ballpark. You know, a baby boomer, late, late end baby boomer. So, uh-huh. uh, I newspapers were a big part of my upbringing and and a part of my everyday routine through adulthood up until even today i I, but i read them online and uh 
you know, it's a changing world out there in terms of how people get their information. And it's impacted the comic strip industry. But for better or for worse, it's still out there and, and still available. And it's it's a stellar achievement. And last year was its 40th anniversary. And you had a big retrospective. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we're very lucky to have um, a wonderful collection of books coming out through IDW in San Diego. And they do um, classic comic strips just as they originally appeared in the paper. So everything you see in these fabulous books, there's going to be nine of them all together and they're huge. They're big, thick collections. And they're, um, they are the original colors, the original size. And it's, it's really a, a lovely thing to be able to have. I have seen those books. And although my collections are all, I don't want to date myself, but they're all the older ones, but, um, I have seen those books. They are beautiful. IDW does a wonderful job. Yeah. Uh, reproducing your work and reproducing classic comic strips in right. general yeah it's a golden era for the the you know the reprinting of and collecting of of classic comic strips well i'm i'm thrilled that that's the case because if it wasn't for the people who love the work and collect it and keep it in uh, in uh, you know hermetically sealed files <laughs> in the, the library of congress and other places i mean we, we don't take care of our work. And, and for the longest time, I had really no record except for what my web designer kept and what my father-in-law kept. He cut everything out and put it in scrapbooks. If it wasn't for the scrapbooks, we would have missed a lot of original art. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, cartoonists are notorious for not saving their work and uh, and or for tossing it aside. And well, uh, Yeah, when you think about all the drawings and where do you put yeah. it? Right. Where do you put it? Who's got you got to rent a, a storage container or facility? <laughs> yeah. store Because it's it's like 10,000 strips you've drawn, isn't it? About that. Sure. Wow. That's yeah. unbelievable. You know, 30 years. The strip ran for 30 years in in uh, with all new material. Correct. From 79. Yes. to yeah. yeah. So. So. And then then it went into reruns. So still 30 years of, of comic strips. It's unbelievable. 30 years and 365 days a year. I, I can't. But I'm not a math whiz, so I can't do the. Uh, <laughs> well, everybody who does, you know, a, a daily syndicated comic strip, that's their life. That's that's what you do. So everybody who's still working, who started when I did, I mean, imagine the drawers and cabinets and <laughs> filing. Oh, my systems. gosh. Yeah, plus the online filing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a ton of work that's out there. And, and you know, it's wonderful. Uh, there are institutions now that are trying to collect that material uh, here in the U.S. Uh, Billy Ireland Museum right. uh, is a great resource uh, for collecting old comic strips and original artwork. And, uh, and of course, the Schultz Museum uh, has all of, not all of, but a great chunk of Charles Schultz's work yeah. and yeah. Uh, and your work your original work was just in a retrospective exhibition i guess that's traveling now um in uh what was it at the art gallery of sudbury um it's was that in, it was in washington at the canadian embassy it's it's just being packed oh. up from there and sent back yeah oh that's fantastic so oh i didn't realize it had gone to washington oh yeah wonderful. it's there it, it's just finished now it's just being packed up and sent back now how did that retrospective come together? How was it that, uh, I mean, you know, what what was the impetus behind it and who originated the idea and, and how did it all come together? 
Well, it usually starts with one enthusiastic person who thinks it's a good idea. And that was uh, uh, somebody at the Sudbury Gallery in, uh, in Canada. And mm-hmm. uh, it, was, uh, it was really um, a year-long project because you have to write a catalog to go with it and then have merchandise and other stuff. And uh, it was a well-received uh, show, and it traveled around Ontario, and then it went out to eastern Canada, and then just as we were packing it up from there, they uh, requested it down in Washington, which was lovely. Oh, that's great. down there now, just coming back. Right. It was original artwork, right? There was a lot of original artwork. Some of it it was original, and some of it was, you know, there are wonderful copies now, fabulous Uh copies, and so some of the storylines, like the death of Farley, and yeah. Lawrence's coming out story. They they're in different um, archives. One is uh, in I think it's in the it's San Francisco Museum, and one of them is at the um, Ohio State. And then oh. some are with the Canadian archives as well. So I some see. some are not really that available, and mm-hmm. it's much easier to copy it than to try and wrench it from the archives people who with their gloved hands hold on like tight you know they don't want to let anything go (laughs) yeah they want to let it go you said it took about a year to put together how were you involved in the choices for the material that was going to be in exhibition and the storylines or were those pretty obvious the things that were going to be we let Folks. them do the choosing, the people of okay. the Sudbury Gallery, and there were things that they wanted to show. And also it was a retrospective of work that I did when I was a little kid and the work that I'm doing now, which is um, surface designs, fabric designs for any kind of surface. And so, um, you know, because I don't want to stop working. And so we're working with T-shirt companies and ties and all kinds of other things just for fun, uh-huh. uh, you know, just 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 to get some new patterns, new ideas, new designs out there. So that's what we're messing around with right now. And I paint on this side for fun. Oh, that's great. You know, and some of that is available to be seen in this wonderful book. I think it's the catalog from the show or, yes. or it went with the comic art of Lynn Johnston, which right. is, is available yeah. pretty much anywhere and on Amazon and, and if people are interested. And there's a, lo- a, a really generous selection of your f- wonderful fabric designs and your forays into painting and uh, a number of different things that are all brand new. It's all pretty, pretty exciting. Sort of new, yeah. Yeah, sort of new. <laughs> you have to keep working. You have to keep going. And there's no possible way I could uh, sustain a comic strip now. It's just, it's... a it's it's a huge amount of work. People tend to think, oh, you just do a drawing a day and send it in. But that's right. not the case. You They don't accept anything less than a week's worth at a time. And the week's worth has to be good, you know, in order to make it good and well drawn and well thought out. I mean, it does take time and you really have to work hard at it. It's, you know, you're, you're working on planes and in hotel rooms and on holiday weekends and yeah it's it's a lot of work it it never stops it's it's a a constant i mean i don't want to call it a grind but it is a constant uh pressure in in order to create and that's great creatively on the one hand all of that pushing you to create and the constant creation just makes you that much better and and certainly you can see the evolution of your style 
uh, artistically over the course of 30 years. It changes dramatically yeah. from the beginning. Everybody, everybody's uh, style changes. I mean, you look at anybody's original, you know, Garfield, you look at the original Garfield, he looks nothing like today. And mm-hmm. Charlie Brown, the original Charlie Brown looks nothing like uh, Charlie Brown today. And we all grow and change and you can't help that because you want to improve. Right. Now, once once you get the job, you're, you know, you're just a fledgling. And once you learn how to handle those pens and you get the right paper, then you just want to get better and better at what you're doing. And it, it and it becomes your signature. You know how when you write your signature, mm-hmm. it's never the same twice, but it, it always identifiable as your signature because of the way you draw it. And so uh, the comic art characters become part of your signature and it just comes out of your pen the way it comes out. But it takes years of practice to get it to... Uh, you know, to look the way it does when you're at the top of your game. Yeah, it's wonderful to see uh, comparing the early work that you did and those first strips and and you were trying to get a lot of information into the strips in those early ones and you got tons of information into the strip in the later ones and it's really interesting to see the distinction between, you know, how you approached all that information in the early years versus is later later on it's so clear that that uh and i love the early style absolutely it's it's wonderful but it's interesting to see how in the later style you become so much more of a designer in a way in is in relationship to the earlier work which is very intuitive and very free-flowing and the later work is is just um there's like this this understanding of how much is going to be legible in the newspaper, how much is going to be legible when you look at at uh, you're looking at an illustration? How much is go- the reader is going to pick up on it? That's ve- there's just this enormous amount of control and skill that's evident. Well, two things. One, when I first started, it was going to be a gag a day, just something a gag mm-hmm. a day, but. Uh, that didn't work out because I kept saying to myself, and then what happened? You do a gag <laughs> and, you know, one person barks at the other and then you say, but then there's always a comeuppance. If the kid yelled at the mom, well, obviously the mom's going to say that's not acceptable and you're, you've got another storyline starting. So uh, after about the first two years, I started doing storylines and that changed my writing style. But the other thing that, that changed my drawing style was uh, hiring another graphic artist to work with me. That was a lifesaver. She was a really talented girl and she could use the pens that I used and I I drew everything out in pencil but the only thing I I actually inked myself was the characters I wouldn't let anybody touch those but she inked everything else and erased the panel because every time I erase something I I don't know I get a coffee ring on it or I sneeze and (laughs) you know the ink goes with my eraser and there you got a big white out patch to fix and I loved it when Laura would just erase everything for me and she was very clean and and wonderfully talented artist so that helped immeasurably well yeah absolutely I mean there's a wonderfully organic line to and this is cartooning stuff now but we have a lot of cartoonists who listen to the show so there's a wonderfully organic line that you have all the way through the strip that's in particularly in the figures uh, and, and I love that kind of flowing quality that you had. I mean, one of the things that I noticed um, when the strip first came out, and I was like 18 or 19, I think, when the strip first came out. So I was reading it pretty much early on. And, and uh, immediately I gravitated to it because it was 
new visuals on on the comics page but also it was really clear that you know you love to draw and you could really draw in a, in a really beautiful way there were there were a number of fairly well drawn comic strips on the comics page in those days and then there were a number of them that weren't quite so and but yours stood out because it was very it had had a very contemporary feeling as well as being a very kind of flowing fluid feeling which is which it maintained all the way through the strip it's funny that you would say it had a contemporary look because what i was using was the old flexible nib pen that you used in the 30s i guess uh-huh, you know people uh-huh. would people would write with these old uh, metal flexible nib uh, pens and my mother was a calligrapher actually my her dad was a stamp collector and dealer in forgeries so they had uh, these incredible uh, displays and all of the history of the stamps had to be written by calligraphy in the day and so my mother was a wonderful calligrapher and she had all of these um, fine tipped pens one of which was a c6 speedball pen which i loved when we started i mean you know it's not so long ago but when i started school we were using dip pens and you'd have an inkwell in your desk and of course little kids are forever making use of that right but you did learn to use a a quill tip (laughs) pen which gives you that variable line either a fine fine hair or else a big wide line Mm. when i'm drawing and i'm pretty sure other people feel the same way especially if you're using something that widens when you press on it is that you really breathe life into your characters with that line you can push and pull on the line as if you were actually touching the character so whenever i did the the pencil line i called it ghosting and (laughs) i when i drew the ink line over it it was bringing the characters to life and anytime i've ever done a workshop or worked with uh, students at all talking about the ghost line and then the lifeline that comes when you actually touch that character with the ink and, and make it permanent. Oh, that's what brings it to, to life. Absolutely. And it's the variation in that line, as you, you, you said, that really imbues the, the, the sense of the artist's touch and also just the sense of, of vitality uh, because that flat straight line, you know, just feels so, uh, uh, you know, dull and, and kind of, dead but when you bring that that beautiful variation uh into the work it really just sings and uh and that's that's great so do you still work with those kinds of pens do you still work I do with a pen? you do yeah i do okay. yeah and have you, I, I i love the line but uh, because i'm 72 and that's a pain in the neck because stuff stops working when you're older you know you all the stuff that you took for granted you know everything from your voice to your balance to your vision to whatever there's changes changes and my hands shake now which drives me crazy and I also have a growth in my right eye so my depth perception is out and you just you say damn body damn (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah joseph campbell used to say you have to identify with the mind and just (laughs) let the body go uh and Yeah. Yeah. And don't look in the mirror. Don't look. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so I'm finding that the the dip pen for me is is a little bit of a problem now because my handshake. So I'm starting to use the there's some wonderful products now, Stadler and some of these other there's wonderful products from Japan and Germany that are coming out that give you a really solid black line that you can erase over. You can use white out over it. does. It's light fast, all of that. 
And mm -hmm. um, I'm starting to use that more and more. And I use it on a tracing vellum, which is almost like a plastic. It's paper, but mm -hmm. it's a vellum. It's a drafting vellum. And I find that those pens, I, I draw in pencil on a piece of scrap, something, you know, a, a cheap piece of paper. And then over top of that, I put this drafting vellum so that if I make a mistake, I can, I can just either throw the vellum out or, you know, I can white out. But I, my original drawing is always there. And I know that people who work on computers have all kinds of ways of fixing, fixing things. But I'm not a tablet person. I, I never will be now because the learning curve is huge. But um, yeah, so I work on, on vellum now with a, a lot of these um, really nice uh, uh, felt tip pens. Uh huh. I, I actually I, I've done that before, and so I'm familiar with the 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 texture that vellum has when you put the. There's a nice flowing quality right. that you get. Yeah, it's really nice the way the ink goes down and and whatnot, and and it holds. It doesn't uh, bleed, and you right. would think that it would, and it doesn't, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, and I think um I think that's that's something that a, a lot of folks have done. I think I've seen some stuff by Bill Watterson and others who've used similar materials uh, in the past. But I, I was I was going to ask you. You answered the question whether you've ever used the the iPad or something like that. Um, simply because there is a, the Apple Pen, which it's, I was always reluctant to try, but the Apple Pen has a great responsive quality yeah. to it, which is kind of nice. Uh, it, they, it didn't have it for the longest time, but now it does. So now in, at this point in your career, you're trying new things that, that actually you, you sort of tried a little bit when you had that time when you were in art school before you, you know, went out into the working world and took on a variety of different jobs. So it's kind of nice in a way to go back and and resuscitate some of that interest in a variety of different mediums. And that must be very, very gratifying for you. It is. It's um, it's quite different. When I was in art school, I went, I took the advertising program and it was a fine arts college and we were called the hacks. Oof. And so anything that we did was considered, you know, commercial. We were the only ones that made a living in the end. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it typically in art school, you know, your instructors, especially in advertising, might be, you know, 25 years out of date. So, uh, you know, uh, color was just starting to come into the newspapers. Boy, I sound like oh. a fossil, but color was just starting to come out in the newspapers. And only the front page was colored because it was so expensive. And it was often misregistered so you'd get these halos of red and blue and you know the the uh, initial printing colors would uh, it was hard for them to register these first page uh, color printing mm -hmm. systems but in art school we were saying why are we doing everything in black and white and gray and using frisket paper and all this antiquated stuff when everything is color now and we were desperate for color so many of us quit and went into the workforce uh, without graduating from art school because they just didn't have the, they just didn't have what we needed. I mean, and you're wasting your time, right? Yeah. So I, I got a job in an animation studio and decided that was where I wanted to go. And this was in Vancouver, Canada. And they, um, the animation studio was farming stuff. They were bringing stuff in from Hanna-Barbera and some of the other Saturday morning shows. And there was no art school for animators. So you had to apprentice under you know, just by working dog jobs in an animation studio, which is what I started to do. And mm -hmm. that just changed my life. I decided that was where I wanted to be was in, in, in animation. Ah, 
And and that didn't quite work out, although there are animated versions of, of the comic strip. But uh, it, you you yeah. didn't stay in animation long. Although I do understand that you did have at least some intermittent contact or brief contact with the J. Ward Studios who did uh, Bullwinkle. That's right. Well, a friend of mine and I, she was, from, uh, she was from Los Angeles, and she and I were working together. She had moved to Vancouver and was working in this studio with me, and the two of us were married to uh, radio and TV guys who, you know, the boss rock jocks type people. Uh-huh. And uh, off we went to Los Angeles to visit her family who were, they wrote for Disney. And uh, we, we just went down to visit and she and I took our folios and her mom and dad said, you guys have got to go in and do some, you know, searching around because it looks like you'd be great to, you know, to work in, in animation down here where it's really happening. Mm-hmm. So we both of us were offered a job at J. Ward Studios. They wanted us to start right away in backgrounds because we were both good artists and our background art was good and our storyboard art was good. But our husbands would not allow us to take the jobs because uh, they would divorce us, right? Because uh. they were they were in radio and TV and radio and TV guys in Los Angeles, you know, I mean, Canadians, they're not going to hire <laughs> Canadians when they have their own fo- folk coming out of technical schools ready to take up a microphone or a camera, right? So sadly, we drove back to Canada with our husbands, the two of us in the backseat in tears that we couldn't work for oh. Super Chicken and George of the Jungle. Are you kidding me, Rock? <laughs> and Bullwinkle, we, it was just heartbreaking for us. Oh, so yeah. we went, we came back to Canada and then I ended up moving with my husband to Ontario, Canada because there was more work in television for him. And that's when I got a job at McMaster University as a medical artist. I, I applied for the job. I saw an ad in the paper and I spent all night drawing guts and skeletons and muscles and whatever I could, I could draw from Gray's Anatomy and Grant's Anatomy and and uh, I took my folio in and got the job and they put me through first year medical school with a couple of other very good artists. And wow. um, they trained us their own way. They didn't hire medical illustrators from Toronto because that's a very specialized job. They wanted people that they wanted to hire and train. So that's what I did. And for about seven years, I worked as a medical illustrator or medical artist for McMaster University and I used all my animation skills it was very very helpful wow how did animation skills come into play in doing medical research well there are things like one the one thing that I remember particularly was um, a biopsy needle a biopsy needle is a strange split needle inside a tube and when you put the tube, say, next, if you're doing a biopsy of a kidney, for example, you locate the position of the kidney and then you put the first tube in to touch the kidney. And the second tube is a split needle. And you have to push that down through the initial tube and it goes into the kidney. And then you take this, the first tube, push it over top, and then you pull the whole thing out, which gives you a little a little tiny worm of kidney in the second wow. needle inside. But to try to explain that, or to yeah. even show somebody what it looks like, it's impossible. Even if you take someone into a into a clinic and, and do a biopsy on, say, a, a, a pig that's not alive, you know, you, you can do all kinds of things, but it it's a drawing that will absolutely clearly show somebody how this works. So I was able to animate a, a kidney biopsy, for example, but I did heart... Uh, uh, surgery and all kinds of uh, it, 
Hamilton was the burn capital of Canada because of the steel mills. And so there's all kinds of plastic surgical techniques that you really can't see in photographs because everything is red and yellow and you know the tissue right. is all different colors so a drawing is so clear and so easy for a student to follow they know exactly what they're looking at oh my gosh that's you know i never thought of that before but obviously yeah you need you need clarity and that kind of clarity in image making is going to play a role in comic strips later on in your comic work later on because you've got to be able to to communicate clearly with relatively you know simple drawings because they're going to be reduced so much and uh, what it really what it really helped with was anatomy like i know yeah. my anatomy i really do and so when when i'm and i know i took a, a sculpture course at one time and the sculptor had us begin with a skull and then we added all the muscles on and then we added the flesh on the outside just to show you what the anatomy of the head was before you were actually going to try and do a, a portrait of somebody in clay but i can do that in my head for the body because I had to work as a medical artist for so long and so many illustrations of, you know, skeletal structure and muscular, you know, insertion and, you know, it, it's just, it's just such a useful thing to have if you're going to be drawing bodies of any kind, whether it's animal or, or human, you really need to know what the body, what the skeleton and what the muscular uh, system is like underneath that surface. So you really cannot draw that well. It's it's essential unless of course you're drawing little uh, uh, cartoons that are really cartoons like big heads and little bodies and things like that. Then you don't need that. But for me, I wanted it to be as realistic as possible. And I I used the Archie cartoons. They were mm -hmm. very helpful. Not only were they beautifully drawn, but they would give you perspectives that were hard to draw and things like what does it look like when two people hold hands. Unless, right. you photo, unless you photograph two people holding hands from the back and the front, how do the fingers curl around one after the other, right? Yeah. And, and things like, and, and Archie was great for clothing. I mean, they would research the clothing of the day and everybody's wearing up to date, especially Veronica and, uh, and Betty, they're wearing the absolute fashion of the day, right? So oh, I found yeah. that really helpful for res res resource material. Oh, yeah. And those were beautifully drawn comics, as you yeah. said. You know, uh, there, one artist who always stands out to me is Harry Lucy. I don't know if you, you know his name, but he, he was one of the, he's one of those guys you saw in Archie comics. You know, you know, identified him and said, that's the good artist. You know, he's really yeah. great. But Dan DiCarlo, I mean, both right. of them were just yeah. fabulous. And, and, you know, I think what happens when you're looking at those comics is folks just sort of take them for granted. You know, they're beautifully produced. Uh, they're consistent and they all have all these wonderful qualities that we just sort of get used to and accept as being mass produced. And we don't think about the people behind them, but they were masters and uh, they were. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. there's a cartoony quality, but there's also a natural quality. Now they're I think, you know, I haven't read Archie in a while, but I think they're uh, they're going for a much more, a much different, much more like almost um not naturalistic, but almost hyper superhero style. Uh, uh, it's a little different, but uh, I prefer well, those guys. You, you want something that the audience can live up to. I mean, I never liked superhero characters because for me, they weren't believable. And especially the women were always these Barbie doll looking characters. And at first it was save me, Superman, oh. save me. And I thought, oh, save yourself, you wimp. 
you know? <laughs> and uh, I just couldn't identify with all these perfect people. But uh, I loved little Lulu and Dottie and I didn't like Nancy as a strip, but I, I loved those sloppy rounded characters because that was me, you know, that was a, that was something I could identify with. So um, I like realistic. I like stuff that is possible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And and well, and that's one of the underlying qualities, to, for better or for worse, that runs through the entire strip. And and this is, I think, one of the. I don't want to leave aside everything about your your career trajectory yet, but I do want to comment on this. Um, one of the wonderful things about that strip that I think is a minor miracle of a kind is that it's both. You you found a way of weaving in everyday life everyday occurrences that feel very much a part of our lives as readers and things that we are familiar with and we experience in one form or another. And yet you found the gentle humor in all of it. And, and I mean, some of it's very touching. Some of it's, you know, filled with pathos and, and brings tears to our eyes, but then other parts of it are just you find the humor in all of it and every day it makes you want to read the next strip and the next strip and the next strip. And, and there's just this wonderful balancing act that happens within for better or for worse that, uh, I think is really rare. And because it is so seamless, it's easy again, like Archie comics, it's easy to take for granted because you do it so well. Well, thank you. Gee, I'm, I'm, I'm floating here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to tell you, you know, when I read for better, for worse, I really, um, and in preparation to talk for you, you know, I went back and read a lot of stuff and, and I have to say it both makes me laugh and also almost brings me to tears while I'm reading it. Even the, the, you know, strips that are not necessarily sad because it reminds me so much of things or feelings in general that happened in my own family, in my own life. And I think that readers all over the place have the same kind of relationship with the comic strip. And, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that's just, a. a, a um, like I said, it's a miracle of a kind um, to be able to put all of these tendencies together, come up with a strip that really reads is so universal. Well, it's kind of like Seinfeld, where it was a strip about nothing, right? The mm. Seinfeld was a show about nothing. And really, everybody everybody connected so gloriously with Seinfeld. For example, something like people who talk too slowly. <laughs> you know, I mean, just little things like that are things that you talk about with your friends over a beer, right? Oh, that person drives me crazy because they're always saying, you know, well, that could become a whole show in Seinfeld. Oh, so, yeah. uh, but it's something we all identify with. And I guess whenever I did a strip that was uh, a little, a little personal or a little goofy, I, I knew somebody out there would have had that happen to them. And one that comes to mind is John Patterson in the comic strip drops a frozen turkey on his foot and he breaks his foot. And in the illustration that shows him actually dropping the turkey on his foot, because I I went to buy one of these big 20-pound turkeys one time, and as I picked it up out of the freezer with one of those little plastic handles, I thought, if this handle breaks and it falls on my foot, I kill myself here. So I did the strip knowing that somebody out there would have had this happen. And as soon as the strip ran, I got a letter from a guy who said, I did that. I dropped a frozen (laughs) turkey on my foot, and he said, I couldn't get any sympathy because it was funny. Everybody'd laugh. And he said, I was in terrible pain. So I sent him the strip. That was my plan. The first person who called me, who wrote to me that said they dropped a turkey on their foot would get that original strip. And I had a nice dialogue with the guy afterwards, you know, it it connected to me all kinds of people. 
Yeah, and it's funny because you mentioned something like that because the um, the we have a couple of dogs and the dogs are driving my wife and I crazy because they want to go in and out all the time, particularly when we're in this one room where there's a door, sliding glass door, and they want to go in and out all the time. And I just read the strip the other day where where uh, Eddie and Dixie want to go in and out all right. the time, yeah. in and out, in and out, in and out, and it's it's just like you know it was perfect because it, it's exactly the experience that we were having, and and for better or for worse, does that so well. It picks up on, you know, so many of these little moments as well as the big ones. I no longer have a pet. Ah, really? Okay. <laughs> because of these moments. Well, yeah, and I can understand that, you know, at a certain point, uh, you know, it, it, it gets, uh, cumbersome to, you know, to be yeah, caring. They were owning me. Yeah. And exactly. They, they will, they will do that. They train you the way they want you to be trained. And then exactly. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, but, uh, so getting back to your career then, um, now it's interesting. The road to syndication for you was really pretty unique in a way. I mean, it grew out of visits to your obstetrician. Oh yeah. There was nothing on the ceiling above the examining table. So, uh, <laughs> He was one of the people that I did cartoons for. His name was Murray Enkin, and he was the pioneer in Canada for um, for uh, natural childbirth, for family childbirth, where the husband and children could come in or, uh, and watch. And it was uh, a whole new method. He really believed that midwives should be part of this. And so he had me do a whole lot of cartoons about childbirth and and uh, all the different exercises you take for the Lamaze and La Boya methods of childbirth, things like that. So after uh, seeing him as a physician and saying, you know, better put something over the ceiling, you know, on the ceiling over the be- uh, uh, examining tables, he said, well, you're the cartoonist. I challenge you to do some cartoons. So after my son was born, there were about 80 cartoons and um, shortly after that, my husband left with a voluptuous script assistant, and mm. I was on my own with a, a baby boy. So I was thinking the world had come to an end, and I was freelancing as a medical artist for McMaster and doing odd jobs and working in. I'd started a little graphic art studio in my house, and I was doing quite well, actually. I was I, I had clients. The trouble with a, your own business is that often people don't pay you. You know, you're desperate oh, yeah. for that 30 bucks that's coming from Nova Scotia and the dog <laughs> magazine won't pay you. And ah. anyway, so uh, when I got a call from my doctor to come over and have dinner, I was shocked. I mean, who 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 gets an invitation from their obstetrician to go to their house for <laughs> dinner? So when I got to the house, his wife opened the door and there he was sitting in the middle of his living room with a bottle of champagne and all my cartoons around him in the order that I had done them. And he said, kid, you got a book. And he popped open the champagne and he helped me get a publisher. And uh, that first little book sold very well. So I did two more all on raising little kids. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do freelance advertising and I'll do a book a year and that'll be me. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up getting a publisher in Minneapolis who, um, sent the books to the universal press syndicate with a note saying, if you don't syndicate her, I will. Wow. And uh, I got a 20-year contract from Universal Press. On the basis of those books. Yeah. That's fantastic. What a story that is. And and actually, you had some trouble getting paid for the books, didn't you? 
Oh, gosh, yes. The first I mean, you go from publisher to publisher if you're doing these little, you know, press runs. And the first publisher was being funded by the Canada Council. And he got money from the Canada Council and put a pool in his backyard. uh, (laughs) Yeah. And after a number of years, he owed me $20,000 for that first book. And uh, rather than go to all the trouble of of going to court and all of that stuff um i just got the rights of the book back for that twenty thousand dollars it was you know you you really do as a as an artist especially as a young unknown artist and as you know musicians and singers and dancers and artists of all kinds you get taken advantage of because it's a skill that people think oh well it comes to you for free so it should come to me for free but you're you're not going to not pay your electrician or you're not going to not pay your drywaller you know yeah but, uh, don't pay the artist it comes to them for free so yeah right. it's a subsistence living at the best and uh, and i was very lucky to get this contract with Universal Press, and in the end, it was a it was a good company to work for. It was a great company to work for. I'm very very lucky. I got into it at a time when comics were still a big deal in the newspaper, and the newspapers were solid. And um, yeah, I I was very lucky to get the job when I did. Well, now the the books that came out um, originally with those cartoons about pregnancy and about raising toddlers and whatnot. I mean, I'm not sure that folks, you know, particularly younger people, will will be aware. But there was a period of time when, you know, just the word pregnant was something that people didn't say out loud in front of no. a, a variety of other people. There were, you know, on television, uh, Robin. Laura Petrie slept in different separate beds, beds separate <laughs> beds, and, and yeah. nobody talked about where little Richie came from. And, right. you know, I mean, all of that was, was disguised and there was this kind of veneer or cloak, invisible, this invisibility cloak, you know, over yes. um, the whole process. And so when you were doing that, it was really, I mean, really unique to find comic material about you know what a woman goes through when she's pregnant and and what happens in her life and uh particularly from a woman's point of view as well there was a series of little books that came out i think from britain and it was called egbert and egberta and it was showing uh, a baby in the womb and all the thoughts that a baby has and it was considered really really a, a, a serious breach you know breed, oh, that's a funny word for for this but it was it was considered bad form and anybody that owned these little books sort of kept them under a you know a brown paper wrapper and uh, it, all it was was a little baby in a shape that looked like a, a, a balloon around it and he was thinking and w- one I can remember was this little baby is squeezed and he's saying mom's wearing a girdle again and things like that <laughs> And there's another one where the baby is looking through the opening of the balloon saying, peekaboo, I see you, as if they're, you know, the doctor is looking at it during birth uh-huh. or something. And it was considered a very, very bad taste, this Egbert and Egberta. But I had seen those books and thought they were kind of cool. And I guess I'd been, you know, in my teens or something when the kids would pass them around like, hey, did you see what I found? But your books were were very different in the sense that they were about the experiences you were having and the experiences other women were having at those times. I mean, it was from your point of view instead of from, you know, the child's point of view. Absolutely. And I tried to show all kinds of different people, different different uh, backgrounds, different different types of people and with their different 
uh, attitudes. Some people really looking forward to getting pregnant and excited about it. Some people are shocked and weren't expecting it. Some people are expecting twins and aren't prepared. And so I, I tried to show all different ethnicities and different age groups and different situations so that it wasn't just one character and one person's experience. That was because I was I was still working as a medical artist and I was still working for Dr. Enkin and doing all kinds of drawings for him. And you were seeing folks with all kinds of different backgrounds and all right. kinds of different experiences. Yeah. Right. So your observations, it's really interesting how that, that career in the hospital uh, really sort of, I mean, it's interesting as it, it's not the, the path you would normally think would lead to syndication, but in a way, if you hadn't worked in the hospital and you hadn't, uh, had the obstetrician you did, you may not have ended up with a syndication contract. You may have ended up doing something entirely different. You know, a graphic studio might've taken off, yeah. whatever, but it's kind of interesting that pathway that led you to the place that you needed to be. Well, I think everybody's got a story. Everybody has a story. There's always somebody who gives you a hand or offers advice or opens a door for you. And uh, yeah, I've had some wonderful, wonderful people in my life who've helped me not only have the courage to do something, but once I got into it to steer me, steer me along. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened once you got uh, picked up by Universal and Lee Salem and the right. folks there started to work with you on a regular basis, uh, help you put the strip together and formulate the strip. Um, how did that process go? I mean, you know, you're sort of thrown into it. Well, for the first six months, I asked if I could just practice because, you know, some people who really want a career in, in uh, syndicated comics, they work for a long time, sometimes a lifetime, perfecting their characters and storylines and ideas, and they submit something that's already got a form to it. But I had nothing. I just had my own family that I could maybe draw if I was lucky over and over again. And so I asked for this six months uh, uh, just development period. So I had a development contract and I worked with Lee and this was really before computers. So you did everything on fax. Fax machine was an absolutely wonderful invention at the time. So I could send my pencil sketches to Lee by fax and he would call me and we'd go over everything on the phone. And that was wonderful. I, I appreciated that so much. So after a while, I was confident that I could begin. And then you know, it's like a raft going down the Colorado River. No paddles. You just hope to make it to the other end because you're not getting out. <laughs> you're not getting <laughs> off. There's no place to stop. Not for you had a 20-year contract, so there's yeah, no yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. So what kinds of things did did Lee suggest about the strip and the characters and gags and whatnot? Uh, legibility, um, uh, uh, subject matter, uh, economy of words. Uh-huh. Uh, you need to write almost as if you're a poet so that your reader doesn't get hung up on words that are not necessarily suitable. You want to be able to get from the first panel to the end as easily and as smoothly as possible without stopping anywhere to say, wait a minute, I'm confused. And so mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a writing style and it really is almost like poetry so that uh, you you the words flow from beginning to end and that your gag line is well-timed. It's timing as well. And Lee was an extremely good editor, so I, I really enjoyed his help. And, he, of course, he would tell me what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. You know, there are times when you think something's funny and nobody else does. 
And one of my very best editors was my mother-in-law, who never even got an elephant joke. And if she if she didn't get an idea, and I was, look, it's obvious. See, look, look, this is what happened, and there's a punchline. And she would say, yeah, but... And I knew that, well, there's a huge percent of my readership that isn't going to get it. So Ruth was my best editor. I would take all my stuff to her first. And, and I mean, was that mostly in the early days or, or did that last throughout, you know, your tenure on the strip or, or, I mean, as because long I'm, as she was alive, as long yeah. as Ruth was alive, she was my be- one of my best editors, because really, if somebody looks at something and says, I don't get it. You uh-huh. really have to look at it, at it again yourself and say, yeah, if you don't get it, then others aren't going to get it either. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a huge ego involved in something like this. If you get that job, your ego is just <laughs> flat out fat, right? Yeah. And so uh, you think that you know it all and, and that whatever you do, other people should get it because you're so clever. But often cleverness uh, is, is not enough. You have to be very clear, very obvious in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what's really astonishing is that you were coming from an art background primarily. And, uh, I mean, you'd grown up as an artist and, and, um, it, all of a sudden now you're in this, this field where writing is like, you know, 90% of what makes a successful cartoonist, uh, or yeah, syndicated cartoon. Yeah, yeah. You don't have the writing. You don't have, you don't have the art. Right. And, and yeah. the writing is really what carries it along because, you know, a variety of art styles can work within the world of comics and, and yet, uh, and it's always lovely to see beautiful art and whatnot, but if the writing's not there, then it, it falls flat. And, uh, the writing was really, as you developed, the writing became more and more complex, more and more multi-layered, you know? Yeah. It's a skill that you really do have to, you know, it, it takes a while to learn. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and once you're you're there, uh, it's really rewarding because you can edit yourself and and you do know if something's going to work or if something is not going to work. Well, and, and how did as you were developing as a writer, you were going from this fairly small nuclear family to a multi-family epic in a way and you know how did you develop the skills uh, was it just sort of a gradual growth or because it really became it went from being a strip that was really about ellie and the children and and john and then you know everybody's growing up and it becomes their friends and it becomes more and more complex as time goes on and then multi-generational it's really quite extraordinary. Um, that must have been a challenge. It uh, it had to happen because I get bored very quickly with things that aren't moving along. And so anytime I introduced a new character or changed the ages of the character, it added more of a, of a challenge to me, which added more interest to me. And I figured if I'm bored with this, Everybody else is going to be bored with this. So I might really have added too many characters. But if you think about your own life Mm -hmm. and your own family and all of the auxiliary friends and neighbors and teachers and, you know, the guy that, you know, sells you your groceries. I mean, really, there are so many. Each one of us has literally thousands of connections, Mm -hmm. if you think about it. And so by the time I ended the strip, I had well over 100 characters that were 
it, there, you know, whether it was uh, friends, teachers, even the bus driver, you know, they were <laughs> all these different characters, which I had to learn how to draw and have a voice for. So it's an acting job as well. Where were the inspirations for, for these characters? Were they uh, people who you encountered in life? Sure. Or, uh-huh. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. In fact, I think you really do need to imagine a certain individual if you're doing a, a character, whether you're acting or drawing a, a character. You really do need to think about somebody who would have that body language or that style of speech. And uh, the one character that co- really comes to mind is Aunt Fiona, who uh, showed up a- after April. The character April is born mm-hmm. and she comes ostensibly to help, but she turns out to be the biggest nuisance in the world. Well, she was based on my Aunt Margaret, who owned a pool hall. Who She was an alcoholic. She was funny, funny, funny. She kept, she kept a shotgun in her bathroom in case her ex-husband ever showed up. Again. Oh, my God. Honest to God. And I said to her, you know, so, Margaret, I said, the, 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 room, the bathroom's so small, you can't get the damn thing up to your shoulder properly. She says, I don't care, honey. She says, if he shows up, I'll shoot him in the head or I'll shoot him in the nuts. I don't care. One way or the other, he's going down. Right? A shotgun in the bathroom. Oh, I mean, this, I, I mean, funny, funny, funny. And it was a, a pool hall and I loved the pool hall. And it it had a, a really seedy, dirty little kitchen. And she made hot dogs and burgers and fries for her customers. And all the queues were bent. Holy smokes, what a place. And I was hoping that I could really show the pool hall. But, you know, she was too wonderful a character and it would have just taken the strip away in another direction so i had to just allude to the fact that she had a pool and mm-hmm. that was it so yeah eventually there was too much material it, it went on and on and on <laughs> well yeah and that could have been a strip unto itself i mean it would have been great it would have been great because i had margaret to think about you know and margaret uh-huh. was a hoot she was an absolute hoot Oh my gosh. Well, so, so were there any storylines at that point that were outright rejected by the, the syndicate? Uh, there were a couple of situations that we didn't do because they were going to be either too close to home or kind of depressing. And I didn't want to do depressing Mm -hmm. stuff and some things are unresolvable Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so the uh, the character next door, uh, uh, Annie, her husband was a hoarder and he was a womanizer and uh, she knew that he was unfaithful to her and it was a big problem for her. But I never got into that story, mm-hmm. although it was very clear in my mind, but mm-hmm. um, I never got into it. And that was partly from talking to Lee and partly from just on my own thinking that just just might not be a great idea. Yeah, and, and I mean, sometimes you can open up a door and that door can lead you down, uh, you know, a, a, a path that just doesn't feel right somehow or another. And Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah so, that's the case, yeah. And there you have it, the end of part one of our interview with Lynn Johnston. That's right, don't be worried, don't be upset. I know, it ended and you're like, oh, I want more, I want more. Yes, there is more coming at you next week, part 
two of our interview with the great Lynn Johnston of For Better or For Worse. So be sure to come back. Be sure to look for it on your feed. Part two is is even better than this this episode. So I can't believe anything could get better than this episode, but it does. So check in with me again here on the podcast next week. All right. Part two of Lynn Johnston. And boy, we've got some great stuff coming up. We've got Terry Flippo of Deliver Me and we've got uh, Kevin Much of the anticipated new release from Fanagraphics called The Rough Pearl. And I'll be talking to both Terry and Kevin very shortly. So I'm looking forward to, to that. And I hope you are too. Hope you have uh, gone over to my Patreon page. If you haven't, shame on you. Uh-oh. Go to patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. There's lots of goodies there for anybody who chooses to support the podcast. You will also have my deep appreciation uh, if you do so. It goes a long way to helping the longevity of the podcast and improving uh, my life and creative life in general. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. And there's, it's a good trade off you know there's some good stuff there for you too and uh, any support is greatly appreciated what else do i have to tell you i know there was something oh hey be sure to go to my instagram feed at grogan jeff g-r-o-g-a-n-g-e-o-f-f if you haven't heard enough already go to my instagram feed i've got a little promo for this piece if you don't follow me there you don't get to see these little things i've done a little uh, special animation in, in honor of lynn johnston being on the show hope you'll check it out i also there's also other little bits of animation uh they will be showing up on my youtube channel also if that's easier for you uh on youtube jeff grogan's blockhead so look for that okay i'm gonna be putting up all of my stuff up there and I might even actually you know try to consistently make sure some of these podcast episodes get up there to stay as well I'd love for you to see that little animation bit uh, it was a lot of fun to put together so until next time I think that does it for me uh, wow I've taxed my imagination it's time to go okay I'll see you next week okay till then thanks for listening <laughs>